Welcome to Investment Magazine's new podcast series entitled The Future of Super, an in-depth series of conversations with key decision makers, leaders, agitators, and stakeholders in policy, regulation, and from within the industry. At a time when the superannuation system is being asked important questions about its purpose, efficiency, and ability to deliver appropriate member outcomes. We will be exploring topics vital to those responsible for governance, operations, and investment outcomes of funds through this series of conversational style interviews. Please visit investmentmagazine.com.au or get in touch to join the conversation. And now, please enjoy this episode. AIA Australia is a leading life and wellbeing specialist with nearly 50 years experience and a commitment to help Australians live healthier, longer, better lives. Visit aia.com.au to find out more. In this episode of The Future of Superannuation, we'll take a look at the great consolidation trend that's been playing out in the super industry and hopefully get into a bit of detail about the nature and approach to deal-making of some of the country's largest funds. I'm Matthew Smith, and I'm Managing Editor at Investment Magazine, and I have the privilege today to be joined by Ian Fryer, General Manager of Chant West, and Andrew Fairley, Chair of Together Trustees. Good morning. Good morning, Matt. Ian, first to you, I mean, you've got a pretty good view across the industry and over a reasonable period of time. How have you seen this consolidation trend play out? Well, I think uh, in terms of drivers, the key driver, I think, is what APRA has been doing for a couple of years with uh, outcomes test and the APRA heat map and funds which haven't come out too well on that. APRA has come down really hard on them and had some really tough conversations about what you need to do to continue or indeed what you need to do to not continue. And it's been working. Um, so a number of funds have exited, a number of funds have have merged. Um, it's interesting that the Your Future, Your Super um, uh, approach is, I suppose, trying to push that further. Um, but what I would say is I think what APRA is doing is working already. Hmm. Um, it's already driving mergers. It's already driving consolidation, already uh, encouraging strongly uh, underperforming funds to do something about it. And we're seeing them leave and join with better performing funds, which is what should be happening. And like anything, um, it's never uh, a simple matter. There's always uh, nuance and, and complexities. And Andrew, uh, your own, you know, funds, Equip and Catholic have come together. Can you um, share some comments on, on that deal and others in the market you think have been interesting? Thanks, Matt. Well, just following up that question that you gave to Ian, uh, Helen Rowell has made it pretty clear when she spoke at the CMSF conference that, uh, in her view, $30 billion is really the minimum level of scale. Uh, so that's an efficient frontier mm. that FI or APRA uh, are looking to use as a benchmark. And there's an awful lot of funds that are less than that that are going to have to uh, get cracking to work through just what their future is. Mm. Uh, and uh, I confirm absolutely with Ian that there are very many conversations happening in the corridors uh, and uh, publicly amongst funds to just see uh, who is uh, going to be around uh, that's suitable for uh, a one fund or another. And the big, some of the big decisions that are being considered in trustee boardrooms now, Matt, are whether 
uh, you go to a big fund that is already uh, at the uh, minimum efficient scale, uh, which uh, our own view is that that's sort of 50 billion plus, uh, and therefore you are in a situation where you only have to do one transaction or whether uh, you are happy to do what Helen Rao referred to as the bus stop model, mm. uh, which is that you accumulate uh, your uh, assets with another fund and another fund and another fund and then build to that uh, efficient scale. Um, in, our, in our case, um, we have had some uh, successes and some uh, not, not so successful uh, merger discussions over the years, but the really successful ones uh, have been our uh, uh, successor fund transfer with Rio Tinto mm. Fund uh, in 2017 uh, and then our joint venture with uh, Catholic Super in 2019 and that together with some other SFTs that we've done of uh, smaller funds, all of which are, are public now, that's Pitcher Partners and Toyota and soon to be BOC, it puts us in at about $30 billion. Mm. Uh, So it's really uh, we've, that, that inorganic growth is an essential component for us of our sustainability and we'll be ensuring that uh, the next deal and the next deal, whatever they are, uh, will take us uh, way past that, uh, that efficient frontier of $50 billion. I talked to you earlier in the year about deal innovation and can you maybe talk through a couple of the ways in which funds can think outside the box with um, boards and, you know, executives that, you know, relish their incumbency? What, uh, you know, what are some ways that deals can get done? I think we're seeing some innovation happening now uh, uh, in relation to some of the announced transactions, uh, uh, the transaction with the uh, uh, with the Sun Super seemed to be innovative. The arrangements in place uh, with Host Plus and Maritime Super appear mm. to be innovative. In, in, in our case, um, we decided uh, in 2015 or 14 that we uh, we needed to be innovative in terms of the way in which we could attract uh, a joint venture partner. And so we sought from APRA a licence to act as trustee of more than one fund. That's called an extended public offer licence and we hold that. I think we're uh, the only or if there are others, I don't know them. Uh, so we have the ability, Matt, to be able to have uh, the company that is our trustee, formerly known as Equip Super, proprietary limited, but now together trustees, that it can act as more uh, as trustee of more than one fund, and we are, in fact, now doing that as trustee of both Catholic Super and Quip Super. I, I guess there's a, a risk aversion on some of these things, Matt, and um, it was always frustrating to us when we would go and talk to funds that we thought were really appropriate to have a conversation about the EPO model, and they would all uh, congratulate us on our innovation but say, come and see us when you've done the first deal. Uh, we've now done the first deal, so we're ready uh, to talk to anybody else. Knocking on some doors now. Um, yeah, look, that, that's great context, Andrew. Thanks for that. And um, uh, 
looking forward to you know both um, your views on on a couple of the recent deals and you mentioned the maritime and host plus deal and I know that's one that's been recently brought up in um, one of the Senate hearings and Ian uh, you know any deals you think are interesting around the market that you've seen that you think are worth mentioning? Yeah, I think just before we go into that, the I think there has been a change in attitude of a lot of trustees to um, to mergers before the Royal Commission. It seemed like okay, um, I really want to keep being a trustee. The Royal Commission comes along, and you see trustees up in the box, and you think I don't want to be there. Yeah. So there's a so the risk aversion I think is a lot different. The Royal Commission has made everyone realise this is serious business and I don't want to be in a fund that's going to get into, that's going to be highlighted by the regulators or indeed by the government. So, so I think that's, I think that's starting to break down um, that issue. But in terms of um, some of the ones we've seen, there's, there's such a wide range and they're all very different, which makes it fascinating to look at. Mm. Like um, one recent one that was announced was Club Plus with Australian Super. That's your sort of typical small fund and going into a really big fund. That's sort of what we're used to. Hmm. Um, we saw another one, uh, NGS Super with Australian Catholic Super. So similar size funds in a similar um, industry. So sort of makes sense. Um, but then we look at TWU Super and EISS, so Transport and Energy. Hmm little bit different to each other and smaller as well. Um, so, um, and then we look at um, groups like LGIA with, with Energy Super. So, there's a Queensland element there, of course. And then the, the latest one, which no doubt we'll talk about a little bit more later on, uh, LGIA Super with, Sun, with Suncorp. Mm. So, never thought necessarily that a, a not-for-profit fund, a profit-for-members fund would end up buying a retail fund, but it looks like it's on the card. So, that's 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 particularly interesting and understanding the use of member reserves in that context. Equip has done a lot in this space, especially with Catholic Super. That's been significant. And Equip's also been successful along with Sun Super at winning a lot of corporate tenders, either member consent, but also a number of SFTs. Um, when we think, though, beyond the corporate side and who is do, who is perhaps doing best at being able to consolidate more, there's probably the First State Super and our Aware Super. So, First State Super merging with Vic Super and then bringing in WA Super and then Visif. Um, so, clearly, there's, um, there's some similarities there, but there's also some differences. I think culture is really important. My understanding is with those ones, culture was critical in making those decisions. Uh, and then, of course, the big one is Q Super and Sun Super, mm. which, uh, if it goes ahead, which looks like will, is going to be the biggest um, not for profit fund in Australia, mm. the biggest. Um, so, look, no doubt we can talk about that as well. But we we're initially looking at funds consolidating because they didn't have scale. With Vic Super and First State Super and our Q Super and Sun Super, we're seeing funds that don't have to consolidate to get scale, they already have it. But they're recognising if they can get more scale once again, mm. then they believe it's in members' best interest. So, um, we're seeing such a wide range of potential mergers, all of them very different mm. um, and all of them driven by similar but different metrics, different dynamics in the industry, different dynamics in in the funds driving them. Yeah. Absolutely want to pick up on your point there around deal funding. You, you mentioned the LGIA super deal and that one using 
member reserves. I'd be very interested in both um, both your views on how deals are funded and the use of member reserves to do so. Perhaps, Andrew, to start with? Matt, I'm not sure how that's funded. All I have seen is what's been written and it appears that a part of that deal is funded from member reserves. I guess if you go back to the principle that underpins the reserving concept, uh, there are uh, there is a need in a fund of any size to hold reserves for contingent events. We know that the regulator requires us to hold 25 basis points in our ORFR uh, because there might from time to time be issues that need to be dealt with in unit pricing or in, in other areas of concern. And we know that uh, we've, we've got the ability to fund administration of general reserve and perhaps uh, in the past there's been thoughts that <coughs> we ought to have an investment reserve and uh, I think that was more popular in the early 90s than it is today so that it was able to uh, have uh, investment returns uh, stabilised. Um, I guess my view uh, as a lawyer uh, is that reserves are owned by uh, members. If they weren't the money wasn't put into reserves, those monies would be credited to members. And I think that you as a trustee have to be really careful about uh, first how much you think is appropriate to reserve because whatever's going into the reserve is not going to a member. And the second is that intergenerational issue that uh, uh, if you're accumulating reserves over a, a significant period of time, then those uh, members uh, who leave the fund during that accumulation period will never achieve the benefit of it and members who haven't even joined the fund at that mm. time are going to accrue those benefits. Mm. I think that uh, the regulator had a pretty clear view that uh, when you establish a reserve, there has to be a clear strategy as to why you would have that reserve, what its purpose is, what uh, what risks it's providing for, what sort of contingencies, um, what is the target amount that you would have in it. And uh, the prospect of using a reserve to fund an acquisition, including goodwill, uh, to me would be anathema. Uh, I don't think that that is an appropriate use of reserves and uh, I'm not, I don't know whether they have been used for that purpose uh, or not in this deal, but I'm talking uh, from the perspective that if that were to uh, come up, I would be expressing concern from a, the, the, the best interest of member perspective as to whether or not that met that requirement. Yeah, my, my reporting on the deal um, suggests that the the deal with Suncorp was funded by LGIA, was funded out of general reserves. Um, the fund had accumulated $100 million in general reserves over the last 10 years a result of uh, capital that had set aside over the years resulting from conservative uh, crediting rate estimates. Kate Farrar told me um, for Investment Magazine recently. Any thoughts, Ian, on on the funding of, of, of deals through reserves? Yeah, I'm not as uh, close to the legal aspects as, as uh, Andrew is, but thinking at it from the fund's point of view, I think what they would argue, indeed on their website, they've mm. got some Q&As about the deal. Mm. I think what they would say is that, look, uh, by getting more members and more assets, we'll be able to um, 
lower our fees over a period of time. And we believe that over five years, um, then they should be able to make the money back through the fees that they're charging to these uh, new members who are coming in, they should be able to make that money back for the mm-hmm. for the existing members. Yep. But there is uh, the generational issue, as Andrew was saying. If someone leaves before that, those five years' time, they probably won't get the benefit. Um, so fascinating that we're seeing um, deals like this yep. and, yeah, really interested to see how the industry progresses and... I'd imagine there'll be lots more surprises. Yeah, and and uh, before we move on from just deal analysis uh, conversation, you mentioned the Maritime Host Plus deal and that seems to be something being talked about a little bit. Uh, have, are, are you familiar with, with, with that one at all, Ian? So, look, that's not a merger, is it? But right, it's, right. Um, it's, a, it's enabling uh, Maritime Super to access the investments of the Host, host Plus through, yes. through their PST. Um, so what it does, Maritime, is provides them with scale and high-quality investments. Doesn't help them necessarily with other aspects in terms of uh, size of the fund, um, number of uh, members in the fund, and being able to spread administration costs across those number of members. Mm. Uh, but to be fair on Maritime Super, the issue, main issue they were looking at was underperformance. Mm. So they would say, well, if that's a main issue, we've now largely sorted that out. So it is an, an interesting approach rather than going down the full merger, yep. sort of a partial merger if you like, or more accurately, uh, outsourcing uh, some of your functions. Allows funds to keep their boards intact as well. Uh, any view on the, Andrew, the um, pooled super trust approach? The, fir- the first comment on that uh, is that by undertaking that type of arrangement, they will still be required to use their investment performance uh, uh, on the heat maps or the outcomes test. Mm, mm. Uh, and so that whilst that might improve uh, under the stewardship of Host Plus, uh, they will still be uh, uh, required to deal with the legacy uh, poor returns, which may well put them in a situation where they'll uh, fail that outcomes test over years, and I haven't looked at that, but it's I'm speaking uh, from uh, a ten thousand feet perspective. Mm. Um, I think that as a trustee in any of these joint venture arrangements, Matt, it's pretty important that you form a view uh, that is a, a measured and logic uh, logical view about whether or not what you're doing is in the best interests of members, or whether in fact the members would benefit uh, from uh, you actually uh, giving up the trusteeship and passing the entire uh, responsibility for your fiduciary duties across to the other trustee uh, because you're then in a situation where you would save your trustee office costs, your board costs, yep. your uh, all of those same issues that uh, emerge from the, uh, from the EPO model that I spoke of yep. earlier. And uh, uh, it's, if it's working towards an SFT in due course, then you justify doing what has been done, I guess. Uh, but that would be the logical outcome. Yeah. And I think it makes um, it, it's an interesting test case of the current approach of APRA, heat map, um, spending time with funds, directing them to do with underperformance, which is on a sort of case by case 
basis and your future, your super, which is um, if you fail, then you've got to write to members and suggest they look elsewhere, which is pretty dire. So I think uh, the maritime super approach, I think, works well under the current APRA regime. But yeah, I take Andrew's point, it may not help them on those lines. But it perhaps illustrates that the more facilitative approach that we've got at the moment with APRA um, means that means that there's more options to deal with problems of underperformance. There's more options that a fund can uh, take rather than just, okay, we need to merge. We're supportive ourselves of rather than just going down a you're out, you're out approach of um, if you fail some sort of a test, you've really got to plead your case to APRA. And if there's a, a reason why things are going to change, then maybe there should be a reason for you to remain. Uh, we think that's probably a better approach than just, okay, if you pass the test, you're in. If you fail it, you're out. No questions answered. It's quite, quite, um, quite stark. And and indeed, we, there's been other discussions where that's going to obviously drive investor behaviour, um, the the behaviour of funds, how they invest. At AIA, our dream is to champion Australia to be the healthiest and best protected nation in the world. To achieve this. We are continuously innovating to develop and deliver customer-led life, health and well-being propositions that help people live healthier, longer, better lives. To find out more, visit aia.com.au. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the performance benchmark and performance test uh, in relation to mergers. What's uh, really interested in your your views on how uh, track record is uh, assumed? Is it a dominant fund perspective or should performance be blended? Ian, you know, you, you're on a roll there talking about sure. YFYS. So well, what, what's your yeah. view on on how I think performance it, track records are used? I think it's still an open question about how it's going to be done. It's yeah. come down to APRA. So APRA's got to work it out. Yeah. I don't think APRA has worked it out yet. There's different approaches. You could say uh, the fund that uh, it's merged into, you retain that performance and the old fund that doesn't exist anymore, you forget about that. Uh, you could say you take some sort of average or weighted average. The problem with taking an average or weighted average is no one's going to want to merge with a fund that's got poor performance because it's just going to infect the performance of the fund it's merging into. Mm. So I think no matter, so no matter how you do it, if there's some sort of averaging, it's actually going to work against mergers. So I think there needs to be some sort of um, the fund that is being merged into that that uh, that performance remains. Mm. Any view on that, Andrew? Andrew? Yeah, I, I can't see the model of averaging uh, being uh, embraced because, as Ian says, uh, nobody would want to pick up an underperforming fund just to have it impact on their own uh, investment capabilities and uh, their three, five and 10-year returns. It, it just would be a massive disincentive. Is it is it the fund's choice or ultimately will it be the regulator's choice? Could we get into a situation where funds are reporting what they believe to be their track record to members and regulator maybe choosing a different one? Well, I, I can't see how a fund that merged, fund, uh, fund A that merged into fund B could go back and start to crow about the performance of Fund A when that fund doesn't exist. Uh, it's actually the fund that you are in now that you need to report on. Uh, and I'm sure that were they to be two funds uh, that didn't have defined benefit, 
uh, there would be uh, not too much doubt around the board table about uh, which fund it should be that becomes the uh, the receiving fund, and that would be the fund with the best consistent investment performance. <laughs> I bet it's a conversation uh, going on within ASIC at the moment, but any final comments on that one, Ian? Um, I think with uh, your future, your super, it's um, from the point of view of driving mergers, it absolutely has. As we, I think, mentioned early on, a fund trustee doesn't want to be in a position where they're writing out to members saying, we, we are one of the underperforming funds and maybe you should be looking elsewhere. Mm-hmm. The potential of there being a run on the fund and your fund then going into significant negative cash flow mm-hmm. and trying to still meet members' best interests in that context is mm-hmm. just a whole world, world of hurt. Mm-hmm. So I think um, like your future, your soup, just the threat of it hanging over trustees, I think has had a significant impact on behaviour and probably has pushed forward some of the APRA work and given it some uh, some more urgency. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so so I think that your future, your super, just the idea of it has significantly impacted uh, how trustees see themselves and what they need to be doing. Yeah, uh, but l- let me just, just ask a follow-up question on that. I mean, has the regulator p- painted itself into a little bit of a a corner here. Uh, is, is there a genuine problem to solve? I mean, will this legislation, once it comes in, pose a, a position where there there could be, you know, zombie funds in the market that are underperforming and no one wants to touch? Uh, absolutely. But I'm not sure the regulators are paying themselves into the corner. Right. I think it's treasury policy. Right. But yeah, um, members' best interests. If we're about members' best interests, do we really want to um, facilitate the consolidation of funds through having zombie funds. Um, that's not the way to do it. I think the way to do it is the way APRA has been doing it, significant pressure on underperforming funds and saying you need to do something, you need to do something mm. within this period. I think that is much less um, negatively impactful on members. you just got to make sure it's done in a reasonable period of time. Yeah. Um, and I think Treasury is, has shown that they want stuff to happen. So if Treasury can give APRA the teeth to be able to take significant action, uh, all, the, all the good, we've, all the we've, for it. We've talked about that in the past, Andrew, um, APRA using its powers to force mergers. How far off do you think we are with that? Well, it's, there are direct routes and indirect routes. I don't think it's ever done it. Uh, it hasn't used uh, Part 16A of CIS in the way that perhaps it might uh, to coerce these and to require them. But um, it's possible for APRA to do it through jawboning. And uh, the the way in which Helen Rowell spoke at CMSF where she said that of the dozen mergers that, that the regulator is aware of, they're not convinced that all of those are producing uh, the, the, the new entity that has the governance capability or the scale to be sustainable over the long term. Well, that's sending a pretty clear message to the sector that Mm. uh, you need to be having a pretty close look at uh, each of the issues that has has enabled you as trustees to form a view that you want uh, to enter into a merger arrangement with, uh, with another fund. And, you know, the sorts of really, I mean, these are expensive things to do. And SFT is really expensive. Uh, it costs millions of dollars, whether it is a $1 billion fund, Matt, or whether it's a $5 billion fund. Uh, the costs are pretty much the same. It costs you millions. Uh, and 
these, that's because you just have to be sure that the due diligence uh, that both funds have done enables you to establish equivalency under the SFT principles. But uh, I think that where uh, the, the regulators coming from is that so much of the relevance of a, a, an appropriate merger comes back to those fundamental principles of um, who are the third-party advisory groups and uh, do they melt? Do they mesh? Who's your administrator? Will the minute the, if it's the same administrator is that more helpful than if it's a different administrator or if you're self-administering? Um, what are, are your investment beliefs? Do you have uh, different fundamentally uh, uh, change different uh, investment beliefs uh, between funds and how are you going to bring those together? What sort of a my super do you have? And if you've got really significantly uh, uh, different my supers, are you going to be able to use a large employer exemption to run two my supers? Uh, so you might have a my super that is a life cycle, and another one that is just a, a 70 30 uh, uh, fund, uh, investment fund. And how are you going to bring those together? Uh, in, a, in a, a short amount of time. Um, uh, you're going to have to look at what are the cost-benefit efficiencies. Uh, and then probably the most important of all of these things is culture and the culture of the, uh, the institutions that are coming together because where you're bringing hundreds of staff together from different entities in different offices, uh, you really need to be good at that integration uh, or you've got a major problem on your hands. And I suppose uh, in the, on the matter of um, the regulator forcing mergers, it'll be under Margaret Cole and, you know, her background and, and what she brings to the role uh, at APRA, uh, you know, now that uh, Helen Rowell's uh, stepping into another position there. Look, uh, it's been a, a great conversation. Um, we're, we're at that time where we can kind of start to pontificate and throw a few predictions out there. And um, are we there yet in terms of the merger uh, landscape and how many more deals need to be done, what kind of deals need to be done and 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 how large are some of the funds in Australia going to get? I think there'll be lots and lots more deals done. Mm. Um, I think over the next few years it'll become uh, clear that a number of uh, other funds should be merging. I think scale is going to be really critical. It's not just size, it's using size well to get true scale so you get benefit. So it's not just like we're big now, that's fine. It's doing it smart. Um, in terms of um, big funds, so, so we're looking at um, some major funds over $200 billion. Um, How many funds do we think we'll end up with? We, we um, perhaps infamously said probably about seven or eight years ago, we saw that the industry was probably moving towards ideally about 40 funds. Hmm. Um, we were quoted at the time in the AFR as saying, Chat West says 80 funds should close now. Hmm. So the maths was right, but <laughs> didn't really want it to come out that way. But look, 40 is sort of seeming like a reasonable amount. There might be 10 to 12 really big funds. I think there's probably going to be some industry-based funds, especially if insurance stays central to 
superannuation, which is a matter mm. of debate. But if insurance stays central, it makes sense to have funds which are, which cater for different groups. So I think there'll be um, there'll be some of those industry-based funds. There'll also be some niche funds based on maybe uh, values, groups like Australian Ethical, groups like Christian Super, et cetera, where their uh, membership is uh, has strong beliefs in particular aspects. Um, but yeah, I, I, I can see us moving towards a world, perhaps not too many years away, where we have about 40 funds, uh, dominated by some big ones, but, but um, some other smaller ones as well. Yeah. I mean, before we get at your view, Andrew, I, I mean, I wanted to just pick you up and and provide some extra thought on that issue around, you know, those industry-specific funds. I mean, all, all funds these days seem to be going public offer, right? And and increasingly perhaps that means that, you know, membership bases are, you know, becoming broader. There aren't too many funds left in the industry, surely, that are that are still not public offer or not many. That, no, they're, they're not public offer. They're, they're virtual public offer. Yeah. But many of them are still based around a particular industry. Yeah. But look, there's challenges on the horizon, isn't it? Stapling. What's stapling going to do to that? Yeah. Does stapling mean that um, half of the people's first phone is host plus and rest and they just stay there? (laughs) What does that mean for some of these uh, other uh, like um, strongly based industry funds? Um, How do they get their members? I think a lot needs to be worked out about how stapling works and making sure we don't just have people sitting in funds forever and not doing anything about it. Member engagement needs to be a big part of that. And we need to sort that out before we start stapling. Yeah. Let's start stapling before we've sorted those issues out. Andrew, you've seen a lot of mergers in in your years in the industry. Do you anticipate to see many more in coming years? Absolutely. And for all of the reasons that we've articulated today, Matt, the pressure is on. And it's not just a regulator pressure. It's the members who are departing the smaller funds for the bigger funds. The bigger funds outperform, the the largest industry funds outperform the other industry funds consistently uh, by sort of up to 70 basis points. And uh, people will and are voting with their feet. The largest industry funds uh, have uh, uh, an operating cost per active member, which is 35% lower than other industry funds. So it's not a level playing field. Scale is everything. Scale is everything. Uh, I think that uh, we will will be lucky to have 20 funds uh, within five years. I think that uh, the rate at which there is negative cash flow in a number of these funds will mean that they trustees just simply have to take the tough decisions. And I think that there's still a malaise with uh, some of the decision-making in trustee boardrooms. And I think that that uh, is a product of some of the organisations that are uh, dealing with uh, these particular funds not being prepared to, uh, to negotiate their way down from the current positions that they hold whether it's in relation to appointments or in other other ways that they benefit from the fund. And I think that that has to change because the reality is you cannot continue to lose members and lose uh, funds through, lose funds under management through rollovers 
and uh, and seriously think that you've got a future. Yeah, and if scale is everything, and I presume that means that you know cost is is paramount. Is your what's your view? Is is there any room for for industry or niche funds at all? Well, there there, there is, and I think Ian's absolutely correct that there'll be sort of craft funds that will operate in specific industries. Uh, and there's some great examples of that. There'll be uh, people who want to uh, uh, maintain their relationship with uh, funds that are ethically based or particular uh, that are religious uh, based. Uh, and uh, uh, those funds will continue to do well simply because they have locked on uh, to a membership base that wants to be part of that. Mm. But for others that are transient, uh, they will not stick around in funds that don't have uh, that performance capability that's consistent yep. and uh, the uh, and the, the issue of cost becomes an enormous uh, impact in the decision as to whether you stay or go. Yeah, and 20 funds is uh, is quite a, quite a small, small market then, uh, you know, considering where we've come from. That's quite it, a it sure is. And I think 20 funds, though, like, is, is that too much concentration? Look at the banking sector. So um, we'd still probably have less concentration in the banking sector, even if we got down to 20. Yeah. Um, in terms of scale as well, it's yes, it's cost. It, yes, it's investment returns. The reason why it's investment returns, if you're bigger, you have access to a much wider range of investment opportunities. You can go direct for investment opportunities rather than having to go through pooled arrangements so it, you get access to more deals and you get access to those more cheaply. And the other area is on, is, is on member engagement. Member engagement is really expensive uh, and it doesn't cost too much more to do it for a, a million member fund <laughs> as a 100,000 member fund. Yeah. So member engagement, helping members understand how they can grow their super, how they can get to where they need to be at retirement is a critical piece. And larger funds can do that much better because of their scale. So, so that's a huge advantage as well. The member experience in theory should be a lot better in those larger funds because they've got the money to spend on doing it really well. Yeah, great. Look, I, we've actually quite covered quite a lot during this conversation and I think it's been fascinating. So I'd like to thank you very much, Andrew and Ian for being part of it. Great. Thanks, Matt. Thanks. Thank you.